Hello and welcome to episode 120 of The Game Pit. We are continuing our delve into the Essen goodness for 2018 and I'm Sean, here's Ronan. Hey everyone, Ronan here. You're very welcome to this, our third and what is likely to be our final treasure hunt for this year's Essen. When you're listening to this, if it is indeed the week of Essen, you'll know we're getting very close. Our next scheduled episode is to come out on Thursday, where we're going to give you some verdicts on some of the games we've been playing. So this is the last of the previews, probably, Sean, unless something very unexpected occurs. Yeah, we kind of just run out of time. We did have one more show with another 12 games planned. And, but time has got the better of us. Time and work and stuff. And stuff, yes. Lots of stuff, yes. So, Sean, 12 more previews of games that we haven't played yet. But going to Essen is not just about the buying of the games nowadays. There's certainly lots of demos of games which are on Kickstarter or are about to be on Kickstarter. And we want to mention one of those today. Yeah, so we do get lots of Kickstarter games come through. One that we're particularly excited about, or I know Ronan is, is Mutants from Lucky Duck Games, Ronan. Yeah, it sounded like you didn't like it, Sean. It's just because you haven't played it yet, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, of all the games that we've been very lucky enough to have a look at and have a play with, we wanted to point you towards uh, the one that's really caught our eye the most. And Mutants from Lucky Duck Games is going to be on display. It's going on Kickstarter on the 30th of October. It's a two to four player card game in which you're controlling a starting deck of mutants. And from there, you can take several actions. You can freeze them. You can use permanent powers. You can affect each other. You can attack each other in little ways. You're trying to power up each round to be the most powerful we've got a pit stop out if you want to know all about it uh, which will give you all the details that's coming on the 30th of october if not before so if you want to see the rules before and have a look on our channel and it will tell you all about it and I, i'm just gonna give my recommendation if you're going to s and try and get a plane at the lucky duck stall or if not and you're keeping your eye on kickstarter when that one drops it's one to cast your eye over because i do think it's a very good game yeah, definitely looking forward to giving Mutants a go, Ronan, and uh, getting around to your house and maybe even playing it at there. If we can get one in before S and Sean, then you can give your views on it. But that's, it's my thumbs up anyway. So I'm moving on from that little tickle. We're going to be treasure hunting 12 more games in which we take a look at the information which is available pre the S and Show. And we're going to give you our verdicts on whether there are treasures or whether they are traps. It's just an opinion, it's just a guess. We haven't played them yet, so take it all with a pinch of salt, but hopefully this adds a bit of fun to your own Essen or post-Essen preparing and game-buying decisions. Very good, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there into the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Stitcher. And of course, we do have our YouTube channel where we have convention coverage, but mainly it's our pit stop overview videos. Let's kick into this, Sean, with Adventure Island, a two to five player game taking 90 minutes from Pegasus Spieler, designed by Michael Palm and Lucas Zack, a design team who are known for Bang the Dice game and the Dwarves, which is one of your perennials. In Adventure Island, this is a cooperative game and the team have been shipwrecked on the way to India. They are stranded on a desert island and the game challenges them to survive. 
It has played over five linked adventures in which there are progressive goals, which range starting from you just need to survive on the island to then starting to explore to then discovering a way to escape from the island, probably depending upon the path the group take. You start choosing from six characters and you're going to start in a camp. And in that first adventure, you're looking to find food and build a fire in order to be victorious. And you have a, a time limit there on the hazards you'll face, which means you can't go too long in achieving your goals. On a player's turn, they get to take two actions. You can go in any order and they get to take actions by placing the doubles on action cards, which start off with very basic ones, but you can gain more. And there are such things to do as oh, taking actions like, for example, building a fire once you've got enough stuff and whichever action cards you can discover. There's flotsam from your wreckage you can discover which can be handy and help you on certain tasks. And then there are places to explore on the island. And it is very much an exploration game. And even in the rulebook, it doesn't give you too much information about where you're going to go and what you're going to find out because that exploration is very much part of it. As, however, you do expand across, you're going to get to meet the locals on the island, you're going to encounter pirates on there, and you may well be attempting to break a curse which has been placed on the island for many a year. In taking those two actions throughout there, and again, I've got to be a little bit secretive, you then afterwards return to camp each night. Everyone has to eat, and they all have to have a hazard card. And when you're doing things or you can't eat, you take fatigue, and if ever a character takes too much fatigue, they die and everyone loses. In terms of mechanisms, when you're taking actions, there'll be a certain difficulty. And each of the characters have got different relevant skills. And whichever the relevant skill is, you're going to roll a certain number of d6, and you're looking to get greens, yellows, or reds on them to succeed, with there being three green faces, two yellows, and one red on each of the d6. As you go through the game again, the card pool will expand, not just with the basic cards of actions and locations of Flotsam, but other ones will come into play, other card decks, which will give you more expansive ways to explore and more ways to set your own story throughout what's going on. There are milestones for you to achieve by doing various things within the game. You don't just have to do it in each of the playthroughs. You can sort of add those up as group conditions that you've done, sort of achievements over the course of time. And as you go through the various paths through the Adventure Island, you'll discover different stories each time, and it's all completely resettable. So you can play with different groups, or you can start again. Sean, I'd be a little bit circumspect there because, as I said, even with the rule book, you don't get all the information about this game. There's hints and there's tips and there's names of achievements and there's suggestions of what you might be doing, but it's very much they're focusing on open this box, you're shipwrecked on an island, discover what's in there. So, yeah, that means that the uh, playing system has to be fairly simple and easy to navigate and sort of almost sort of second-hand information like it's, it's in the, it's on your periphery it's, it's part of just what you're doing you're not thinking about those mechanisms themselves and i think with the card action selection thing i think that will help it yeah very much i think they're focusing on the story here while there are mechanisms to give you challenges so you're not just breezing around it's not a full story game where you just pick a paragraph and read it it's much more about your decisions will drive what you're going to do and not just your decisions but the things that you discover and then what you decide to do with them I think that that kind of lends to two different things. First of all, it's very cooperative in nature because any character finding things and, and doing things is going to help everyone else because you always reset back to the camp so you can always help each other out. And the second thing is, I think they're very much going for variety, Sean, because even in the first game, that it's going to play different every time because you'll discover places in a different, uh, different ways or you'll discover different things of flotsam which will open up actions to you to allow you to get through the obstacles in different ways. All about variety through that story. 
Yeah, one of my concerns was going to be that sort of replayability factor, Ronan. And I, I managed to find a thread on Board Game Geek where the designer came in and sort of addressed some of those concerns. And yeah, basically, there's so much that you can do. There's so many things to find, so many elements of, of this story that you should be able to play this multiple times, at least according to the designer. And he wouldn't lie to us. <laughs> Why, what, what end has he got in saying that his game's great? Please buy it. Uh, for the little bit of information we can get, it seems that from the achievements, you, there's definitely locals on there. You may be able to either be antagonistic or befriend the, the locals, uh, as well as the pirates. It looks like, as well as fighting the pirates, you might be able to become a pirate, which sounds quite interesting. There might also be other people who've been shipwrecked previously, maybe several years, decades ago, who have been stranded, who might know more about the mystery of this island than maybe the curse, and you're looking to kind of look into that, maybe a slight lost vibe on there. Actually, I don't know what the time setting is. I couldn't really work it out from what I know. So maybe it is lost the board game. I don't know. It could be, it could be. I definitely got a Robinson Crusoe vibe for it, obviously, for obvious reasons, and the way that you sort of affect the game in Robinson Crusoe. I think this one's going to go into more depth with the storyline, but definitely that vibe going on. And last thing I wanted to bring up, Ronan, was the artwork. I really like the artwork, but it's a little bit sinister. The people are a little bit uncanny valley, sinister looking, and I think it actually lends to the theme. It makes you a bit wary of people. Yeah, no, that's all you, mate. I can't help you with that. That's, uh, you're going to need to bring that up at your next therapy session. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to sum up, Ronan, if you don't mind, because it does give me that Robinson Crusoe vibe, and I love Robinson Crusoe. I respect the designers. I am sure that the publishing house will have done a thorough job on this one. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up and a treasure, Ronan. That's a treasure island for Adventure Island. Oh. Not the last time that that name's going to be mentioned this episode. I'm going treasure not for the mechanisms, as you said. I, th I think mechanically it's very light. But for that variety, for that story element, for a slightly different group. I couldn't pull out Robinson Crusoe after dinner with casual gamers. This one I think you could. And I think Spy Club this, did this sort of thing very well it's a lighter game but you link together and things you do in the first game impact things in the third game but very easily and naturally and it flows through and uses a deck system and i'm hoping adventure island is in that sort of a vein because it's a good vein to follow so yeah treasure double treasure for adventure island we've already started better than last episode <laughs> we've forgotten about last episode let's never talk of it again anyway so my first game of the episode is Nemeton and it's designed by John Favazzo and comes from Blam Games. Blam! Blam! And it's two to four players. So in this one the forest is under a curse. There seems to be lots of games about forests and making forests and saving forests this year. I don't know. Hmm, maybe what have you got against trees? <laughs> Shut it's up, it's tree their hugger. turn. Did you see my tweet last night? I did not. Maybe the trees are farming us. By providing us with oxygen and then eating us when we die. Fodder for thought, yeah. There you go. Think about that when you're playing Nematon. Carry on. <laughs> so the forest is slowly dying because it's under a curse. I didn't make that up, by the way. Yeah, I, I stole that from someone. It sounded for a minute there like I'd made that up and I was trying to be deep. No, I just nicked it from a meme. It's good. Carry on, Sean. Sorry. Good man. Good man. And the druids are the last guardians of said forest. And they are going to answer the call of the animals to come and save the forest. Lots of mentions of forest there. So, 
us as players, we are the Druids, and we're going to start with personal boards and a central board with objectives, animal tiles, and starting tiles in the centre. The game is going to play over 11 or 10 turns, depending on player count, and each turn has four phases. You have a night, a dawn, a day, and a dusk phase. Each player will play all the phases through on their turn. So in the night turn, all forest tiles are hexagons and they have the moon on the back. And the first thing you're going to do is take the moon tile without looking at the face and place it onto the forest. And wherever the moon shines in a straight line along all its sides that it's connected on, then flowers are going to grow depending on what is printed on the tile that the moon is shining on. And you're gonna place your flower tokens. Then you're going to move on to the dawn. And the dawn is to basically flip the moon to the other side and see what's on it. If there's an oak, a megalith, a spring, or a triskel printed on it, then you're going to add those tokens to it. You've got a normal movement of one or two tiles. And you've also got a special movement by flipping one of your special movement tiles. You could also, if you really wanted, eat the nightshade flower if you have one. And that's going to turn you into a bird and you can fly to any oak tree tile. Once you have moved you can ask any druid on your space for help which is basically a forced trade. Then you're going to collect any plants on your tile. If you're with an oak you can use the oak powers which are exchange two plants or reserve a potion card more about them later. If it's with a megalith then you're allowed to brew a potion as I just talked about, you're going to pay the correct amount of flowers and get that potion card. If you're on a spring card, then you're going to earn the trust of the animals and you're going to pay flowers to take animal tiles. If you have brewed a potion or befriended the animals, you can place your own personal marker token on the tile and either pick up a Triskel if it's present or reactivate one of your special movement tokens. Just quickly before we get to it, animal tiles basically mean that you're going to get points and or special one-off powers. Then you're going to move on to Dusk and you're going to complete any objectives that you can do and do your upkeep. Scoring in this game is from those Triskels I mentioned, for potions you've brewed, for any goals you've achieved, sets of different animals and minus for any reserve potions that you haven't been able to make. That was Nematon. What are your first thoughts? My first thoughts are that... Uh... I hate you for your <laughs> opening sentence <laughs> because our overused theme and my first thing is points for not overused theme is actually what my poor grammar notes say. <sighs> I thought that, okay, the forest bit, okay, it mentioned a lot and Druids maybe not that original, you know, we, we saw them in Samhain and stuff like that last year, but in this particular way, in the presentation, it, I felt like it, it was fresh, Sean. I didn't feel like I was looking at the same old thing. I'm not building an Egyptian city or I'm not putting together a trade network in, in wherever it might be that we always put trade networks together. I liked it. <laughs> it felt fresh to me and I liked the presentation. I think the presentation absolutely spot on. I think it is a beautiful looking game and I think that table presence with the springs and the megaliths and what have you on there and the little wooden tokens representing the flowers, all very colourful, and that table presence will really stand out from the crowd. Especially the Triskels. The Triskels, yeah. I was struggling to say that word. but What's a, yeah. what's a Triskel, mate? I'm going to make you say it some more. A Triskel seems to be just a shape that with little spirals coming out of it. Oh, that's good to know. It's good, it's good to know yeah, your shapes. Yeah. 
The when you place during the night phase, when you place that tile down and the moon shines out in the directions up to the terrain that you're placing on, that whole spatial aspect and the fact we talked about architectura a couple of episodes ago where you lay the card down and it affects previously laid cards and how much i liked that idea that the, the board's not static exactly the same here i love the idea of placing down your moon tile and then it's going to affect the other tiles so that the board isn't set there's always different things going on and it's probably not obvious where you want to move your druid to because it's not just where the new tiles are coming on that's where everything's going to be they might reflect back and and affect an old area and refresh it and make something different happen there as well they might, but I think it's very, very basic. I was actually hoping for a little bit more out of this particular mechanism because once you've done one refresh, it stops there. Or if there's a double like river tile, for instance, it, it doesn't bypass them and it only goes so far. I, I was hoping that it'd shoot off in all directions and maybe do rubbishy things to some of the tiles that pe other people have managed to get the flowers to bloom. You you wanted there to be meanness in this game. I did. I just wanted a little bit more because I, I saw good things in that mechanism. I didn't think they explored it enough for me. You've changed. <laughs> Barely feel like I know you. I look in your eyes and you're a stranger. Okay, the moon mechanism, you feel like it's not doing that much. Oh, fine. But there is a lot of choices of what you can do with your druids. To the point where when I was reading the rule book, I kind of felt for saying is there too many choices am i gonna be able to do all these things in my 10 or 11 turns you can be with an animal friend or you can really chase the potions and there's, there's different ways of doing things and i was kind of like hmm we're just moving my druid once is there too much to try and do see again i felt that that was quite even even limited the amount that you can move the druid you've only got two special tiles you have to do something special one of the brewing potions or commune with the animals to get those flipped back unless you have some nightshade so you're only really going to be moving one or two spaces then your options are quite limited to where you can get to on your turn so you have to kind of really condense what your targets are i think I feel like we've read two different rule books. <laughs> it was a good rule book, though. I'll say that for it. Oh. I was in the mid of my Essen rule reading, and I understood it. So for me, that, that's, a, that's a win. The rule book needed a little bit of editing. That's It wasn't a bad rule book, but it did need a bit of editing and a bit of streamlining into... It, it kind of mixed things up a bit, and, and the layout made things seem a bit more difficult, I think, than they are. I mean, you're saying it's a very simple game. I agree that simple things happen... What I'm hoping for is that the interaction of those simple things and the fact that for my druid, I have several choices of what I can do and what paths I can go down will lend the simple mechanisms to have slightly more depth. Yeah, 100%. I think within themselves, they're simple. But once you once you get all those tiles around you and once you start building up towards something, for sure, I think it's going to start to really ramp up. Well, I've been horribly positive there all the way through because I felt like I was kind of counterpointing you a little bit. <laughs> I'm not raving about this one it's not the strongest treasure i've ever done but it's certainly a game that i think is worth a play and worth a look at and is going to be attractive enough to get eyes so i am going to lean into a pool of nightshade with a with a treasure of nematode that didn't work but i'm sticking to that that's that's what i'm doing okay i like you ronan off you like me i do good <laughs> like you ronan I am kind of on the fence on this one. I'm, I'm sat on there on the on that fence to the forest, not sure whether I'm going to hop in and collect some flowers. But I think after the last episode, I think we're kind of we're a bit mean. 
let's, let's be honest, we were a bit mean in the last one, so I think, in spirit of being positive, I'm going to give this one a treasure. Blam just, just WhatsApp me and said they don't want your pity treasure. <laughs> blam! Blam! Okay, speaking of blam and that accent, let's go to the captains of the golf, shall we? Yeah. Two to four player game, 120 minutes, coming from Spielvox, designed by Jason, I think it's Dinger. It could be Dinger or Donger, but I'm going to go Dinger because that's my accent. Okay. In Captains of the Gulf, each of the players are going to be running a fishing boat in the Gulf of Mexico, heading out on their turns to catch crabs, oysters and shrimp, and then selling them back to one of three ports on the board in order to have the most money at the end. This is a rondelle-driven game in which you're going to do a new action selection on the rondelle, moving around into the six different spots, and the game counter is when players' action markers have made a full turn round the rondelle. It'll count down the number of players, depends how many turns you've got to do round, and we're going to have eight of these turns, which are dependent upon how many actions you take. I explained that beautifully. Good. I'm glad that I haven't done this before. Right. Well, moving around the rondeau, the first two moves are always free. You can pay to move further and you can get upgrades in order to make that even cheaper. And that is a huge part of the game. There are game cards which have got multiple use to them. They can give you different abilities, get you different crew and give you different upgrades and change all the rules and make everything work. And the game is very much about customization off your own boat. But what we're going to do with this action selection, first thing you can do is you can move around this map of the Gulf of Mexico, which is the board, a bunch of hexes. And on the fishing action where you can move, you're going to go to a fishing site. Now, the fishing site starts stacked up with these uh, tiles off those uh, oysters, shrimp and crabs. And that's how many of each catch is there. Over the course of the game, when you do resets, some of the original areas are going to refresh, but some of them are going to be overfished, and the refreshing might move around the place. So there's a moving around of where the fish are, but they always start in the same area. Anyway, at some point, you're going to have to go out there, and then you're going to play a card from your hand, which is going to tell you which fish you can catch in the area you are, as long as they're present. In order to do that, though, you have to previously have played one of these cards as a license so there are three different types of license you can have for the three different types of catch and you have to have those licenses and have paid for them in order to be able to catch them and then play a card from your hand with the correct catch on there in order to get those licenses you're going to have to take in a shipyard action in which you can pay for one or two upgrades for licenses which will allow you to make those catches and take those tiles also in the shipyard you can hire crew you can get first mates which will give you specific sales bonuses and extra money when you go into certain ports or that's how you're going to get a discount on the money to move around the rondel there are engineers you can hire which will help you save fuel because every time you move around the board you've got a fuel tank starting with a level of six and you're going to be burning fuel but if ever you're heading back to port and you run out of fuel which looks to me like it might happen in the early game quite often you can pay money to get towed back but that money's your victory points at the end of the game so obviously it's costing you also those engineers can get you discounts on various things throughout the course of the game if you have deck hands they like to go after certain types of catch and they're going to allow you to play additional fishing cards when you go in and go after the type of catch that they like also they're going to allow you to sell more when you're back in that port 
Now those are if you put cards on the left hand side, the licenses if you put the cards on the top of your boat, and I show the top of them showing, and the right hand side is the other thing you can do in the shipyard, and that's boat upgrades. Again, there are various upgrades that will get you discounts on the various actions in the game. You'll be able to buy a bigger fuel tank to store more fuel. You'll be able to buy a bigger hold. You can only hold two fishing tiles at the beginning of the game, but you'll be able to store more. You might be able to put a galley on your boat, which will let you cook all your fish, which means they'll all sell for more money back at the port. Like as I said, the customization of your boat is very much the heart of the game. You can sail to port. When you get back there, you can sell your catches to the markets. There's a market in which you'll make money. You'll move a dobber up the port track and it will give you bonuses for getting certain ideas and also some end game VP. There are also import bonus actions. Now I said there are various phases throughout the game. You've got these bonus actions you can take either import or on your boat but they're limited and every time there's a phase reset you get your bonus actions back to you. Halfway through the game you get a second bonus action ability when different cards come into play. You can buy fuel when you're back in the port as well by the way. Obviously you're going to need to do that otherwise you're going to run out quite quickly. Each round, there's also going to be events that the players are going to have to react to, which are going to change things up quite a lot. You'll be able to earn more money, or you're going to have to pay wages to all the crew you've got, and maybe you'd have to pay maintenance on any boat upgrades you've put in place. So when you fish in an area, you put something called a depletion marker in there, and when we do this reset, depletion markers will start coming out, and once they've all come out, that area will then restock. But also, these fish will move around and they go to different areas, and different fishing opportunities will open up to you. After eight rounds of this, whoever's got the most money is going to be the most successful captain off the gulf. Now, it's most money that you have in hand from all your sales and things you haven't spent, but also you get bonuses for moving up in the markets. And you're also going to get a malice if you haven't sold much in any of those ports. So it's encouraging you very much to sell around the three ports and sell everywhere to be the best captain of the gulf, Sean. Yeah, that was that was some undertaking there, Ronan. Well done. <laughs> I tried to narrow that down as best I could. I don't think I did very well, but there you go. I don't think you could. I was skimmed past by myself. Uh, some of it based on the artwork. I didn't particularly like the artwork in the game. And also, I, th- I thought it was going to be sort of one of these sort of hipstery, quite niche games. And I just kind of didn't even look anything about it. And then obviously you've made me look into it. My word, there's a lot to this game. Some of it I'm on board with. Absolutely like the customization element. And um, let's go down that road first, one. It's the heart of the game. What I like about this, uh, it, it kind of rolls two things in. There is a bonus for absolutely everything. You can fish more. You can have deck cans that you catch more. You can sell better. You can have more fuel. You can have more fishing space. You cannot do it all. And I think when you read through the rule book, one of the things that you really have to gather, because you look at it and go, well, everyone's just going to have all of these because they're all great. And in fact, they all feel overpowered. But at the end of the day, you can't do that. You've only got eight rounds. You have to get out and fish. When you come back, you're spending your victory points to do it. And you're going to have to choose from what you're drawing in hand, what goes together best and make the best combinations you can. And hopefully yours will feel more overpowered than everyone else's will feel. I get what you're saying. The whole thing just felt a little bit overwhelming. And a theme shouldn't be that important to a game, but the theme just didn't grab me. I found it quite boring and tedious. So therefore, I wasn't really as interested in sort of reading on and go, oh yeah, you can do this and that, as maybe I would have done with a different theme. Just the fishing theme. You're not that excited in... Yeah, I just fishing. the whole fishing thing going now fishing <laughs> I, I get that it's really thematic that you need you need your fuel you need your fishing license you need to work out where where the type of fish that you you want to fish are 
at, at that given time and then go out and obviously bring in the hall, sell them, do the economy side of it. Very thematic. I'm just not interested. I think there is an issue with making fishing games as Euros in that inherently there's some luck involved in fishing. Yes, you can prepare, you can have the best equipment, but things might go wrong. Now, they've tried to integrate this with these thematic events in which the timing of certain things, like you'll sell certain catches for more or go to a certain port and you'll be worth more money or you'll have to pay for maintenance, which you don't know if it's going to happen or not. And those events lend into the theme but go against the idea of a heavier, thinkier, combo-driven euro where you're having to think a lot and put some effort in and squeeze every last dollar out for hope of winning but then have something cost you $20 that you had no control over. With the fishing theme, it's... I think it's a necessary evil, but I do think it's a big a hurdle that people are going to have to get over. And also, once you've kind of decided, you've customised your boat, you've got your crew, you know what you're going for, I felt like the game was almost beyond rails then. So you, it would almost sort of, you've got to go for this type of fish, you've got to bring them in, etc. There's, there's a process to be followed once you've done the interesting things. Yeah, would it be a case that you'd have to follow that type of fish? Again, a sort of a thematic thing where, mm. well, the shrimp are blooming over there, so that's where I'm going to have to go. Yeah. One of the things I thought there, that if you get tied into a certain area and there's what's most profitable for you, one of the things I didn't like was that malice for not having sold at certain ports or not getting a certain way up on a track. I feel like you're giving us this sea to go into, you're giving us the ability to customise, you're giving us, like, get in there, make as much money as possible, look for a gap in the market, exploit it as well as you can. That's all good. Very gamey thing to sort of punish you for not having sold equally in all three ports. I, that, uh, I wasn't too happy about that. So, yeah, for me, it felt like almost a game of two halves. It felt like the first half was really interesting with decisions, even though I didn't get grabbed by that theme. And the second half, as I said, felt more on rails. You have to do these things and you have to do them in this order. And you almost just it was just an, a necessary evil. So I think it's a very ambitious game. There's lots to it. I think it's one of those, it, it's not for me. So it's a personal trap, but... I do hope that Ronan picks it up because I would really like to try try this one out to see, well, if it does hold together all those mechanisms. Rest easy in your hopes, dear cousin. <laughs> I've forgiven the fishing theme in games before and I think worse games than this. I need to see it in operation. I'm not 100% committing to this as an amazing game. Again, but there's enough there. I trust Spielwerks as a, as a publisher. There's been excitement building about this one for quite a long time. I like the combo-driven and the multi-use cards. And I want to see how important it is to grab that aspect of, oh, I've got to exploit that gap in the market. So I'm going treasure for Captains Off the Gulf. And you will be hearing more about it from us. So, Ronan, we're going into Rantsville on a little rant down Rant Lane. <laughs> it's our it's our annual rant. All aboard the uh, Rant bus. There we go. The game is Mini City, and it's from Leo Colavini and Teodoro Mitideri and Piatnik. Two to four players. And the theming around this game is that we are ants and we're trying to build stocks of different coloured food. The ants tried to control the pantries matching the colour of the food and using movement cards and we are going to try and get that food to the matching colour pantry that's pretty much it so I'm sitting here 
on the Sunday before Essen, so four days before the Essen Halls open, and they have not got anything more about their game out to the general public. I was drawn to it because I really like Leo Colavini. Some of his work is very interesting. It's for my son, I was looking for it, but yeah, it's 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 a disappointment, Ronan. It has colours. It's bright and cheerful, I've written down. Hey. It has ant. <laughs> it has both colours and ants, Sean. It does, it does. Is that enough for me to give it a treasure? I'm going to think for a second. <laughs> colours and ants? Can you have too much? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I went on their German language website. I believe they're an Austrian publisher. I really trawled through this. I tried to use my very poor German to even find out more information. Maybe it is out there. I don't think it is, though. And given that we kind of punish ourselves by making ourselves do all this research, it's kind of enjoyable punishment. And we can't find it. How is someone who's got no investment in finding information going to find it? It's the same rent every year. You happen to have struck gold with Mini City. <laughs> it could have been any of these. Because we chose these games quite a while ago, so we never actually like know how much information is going to be out about each of them. Mini City, not a lot. So, trap. As I said, it looks bright and cheerful. It is a kid's game. I was kind of hoping it'd be like Spinderella or something like that, but I don't know. So it's a trap, and that's Mini City. Jolly good. Realm of Sand, Sean. A one-to-four-player oh. game taking 45 minutes from Emperor S4, designed by Ji Hua Wei. The Realm of Sand, as you know, supplies magic to the Realm of Ragusa, but that magic has been overused, and therefore the Realm of Sand is crumbling. We are going to rebuild the Realm of Sand because our queen has dived into it and she is going to be sending us back glyphs which we can see in the material plane which we will rebuild using buildings and they will be the stabilisers for the Realm of Sand. This is a polyomino game in which each player is going to have three polyominoes available to them and there are going to be 12 cards laid out with building blueprints and those are going to be 4 level 1, 4 level 2 and 4 level 3. On a player's turn, they're going to take one of the three polyominoes in front of them, and they come in three colours of red, green, and black. The squares can be with different combinations and different shapes. And you're going to play it onto your own board. Now, when you play that polyomino onto your own board, you take the individual squares, because you're going to be able to overbuild and stuff. You use the individual squares to lay it out on your own little tiny board there, and you put the polyomino back in the circle, and you take one of the next two from where the queen is standing. Very patchwork styly there. You've got light and dark regions on your board and you're only allowed to initially place them within the light region. And as I said, you can replace squares. If something's been put there originally and there's a, there's a red hanging on the end of a shape, I can build that red over something that's been there previously, like a black one or whatever it may be. What you're looking to do is finish the blueprints, which will be in the, the three colours, or maybe more, depending on the level, off those buildings you can see in front of you that are laid out in the central of the table. And when you've done that, you take the building and you have built it and you remove the squares you use to build it. In doing so, you're going to earn some discs sometimes. Now, they come in the two... Well, they come in those three basic colours, but they also come in two other further colours, which is why I'm saying that some of the blueprints may have further colours in them which aren't present on the polyominoes you can take. But when you earn discs for building buildings, those are permanent things you have to fill in your board. And whenever you complete a building, the squares go back to the stock, but the discs come back to you. So earning them is a very handy thing to do. 
You also get stars for completing those buildings and those stars are worth victory points. And there are also egg timer things on there which tell you how long you've taken basically. And it, whenever anyone has got 10 or more of those egg timer thingies, then that is gonna be the last round. You can also level up from building certain buildings. When you do so, that allows you to use a certain number of squares outside of your light area. So you can work on various blueprints at once. There's also an advanced mode in which each player has got their own unique power. And if you cover certain crystal areas on your board, you recharge your power and they're gonna help you build these buildings. But it plays the same way. And once someone has collected those 10 egg timers and we play the last round, we then check who's built, got the most star points for the buildings they have built. And they will have won Realm of Sand. This is another polyomino game. And almost inevitably, this is how all polyominoes get looked at and reviewed. They get compared against the other polyomino games. More so, I think, than any other genre, sure. When we look at a worker placement game, we don't instantly compare it to all the other worker placement games. But for some reason, with polyominoes, we do. And it's entering into a shark tank, I would say. <laughs> I don't think they did themselves any favours with the uh, the big circle. Very, very reminiscent to Patchwork. With a wooden dobber that goes round and you yeah. choose through. Not, not from the three in front, though, just the two. So you'd be aware <laughs> of that. Because right, our lawyers have right. made, made note of that. <laughs> so they haven't done themselves any favours there. Um, I started looking at this one, Ronan, and I read the story. sounded interesting. I started looking at the art of the actual buildings and the, the box art. Oh, very interesting. And you can just scratch that. Like, just take that away. Effectively, it's a, it's just a puzzle where you've got to match That's shapes. our queen struggling in the realm of San Sean. <laughs> you would abandon her there. You're that sort of a bloke. I, well, I, I would after seeing this game, yeah. <laughs> oh! Oh, come on. How far away from me is this game? A themeless... You like Baron Park? There's two polyominoes games I like, Patchwork and Baron Park. Well, they are probably the two best ones that I can yeah, think of and, anyway. And, and when we're, we're kind of giving, I'm giving the gold away already, but for me, that's enough. I don't need any more in my life. This doesn't really produce anything new. I, like, I quite like the having to get into the darker areas and having to plan your building so that you get into those darker areas so you can build more, but... Everything else was very samey. Hmm, you're, you're a tough crowd all of a sudden. Okay, I will say very solitaire. We mentioned Baron Park there. At least in Baron Park, you're racing to VP with the objective yeah. tiles and also to you know the little bears that you get when you complete a, a larger tile. And you do have to care what other people are doing to a small degree. So at least you're looking. Mm. In this, do you care what anyone else is doing? There's no competition they might take an odd tile from you but you've got a hand of three anyway it doesn't matter what they've earned as discs well, i guess if you've got two blue discs i can see you might go for that level three building it's very very gentle and that to me made it feel like it wasn't very tight and it was more just a puzzle and was i getting more out of a four player game than it was a one or two player game i'm not sure i was yeah i think one positive for me ronan is that it just seems super easy to learn. I read that rule book. Uh, I don't even know if the rule book was that great or not, but oh, yeah, it I, certainly was. Was it was. To, I certainly was able to pick up very quickly what I was doing, why I was doing it, how I was doing it, and how I won the game. And I think you'd be able to convey that once you have the game in front of you even quicker. And the fact the game itself is quick, it's only 45 minutes. Yeah. That rule book is good, I think it is. The fact the game's easy to explain, but 
that led me down to back in fact in a circle of polyominoes to your original point is that because it's very derivative and you just whenever you're teaching someone you go well here's the circle like patchwork and you lay these down like all the other ones <laughs> is that why it's so easy because you look at it and you go yeah I know how this plays that could be a negative true true yeah yeah I didn't think of it like that yeah so yeah obviously you know how those games work so in a chain you know how this works yeah I get what you're saying I think it's an easy one for me to sum up Roland in that I just don't like this type of game and it takes a very special game for me to actually go you know what yeah I want that in my collection I think I have those two special games and this one it just didn't grab me at all so if you're a fan of polyominoes games maybe but for me it's a trap I actually think it looks okay I'd be happy to play it. I'm sure I would enjoy it. I'm just not sure it has that that magic dust that makes me go, oh, yeah, this is special. So I'm more positive than Sean. Very happy to get a play of it in. Happy to be proven wrong because, you know, there's a couple of good reviews of it out there. But currently, it's just going into the trap side just because it, it lacks that shine and glitter for something very special to be a treasure. Okay, so another game that's following on from a, a definitely a series of games. It's Legendary Encounters X-Files this time. And it's designed by Ben Chikowski and Daniel Mandel. And coming from Upper Deck, playing 1-5 to five players. In the X-Files edition of Legendary Encounters, we're going to act as a team of X-File agents to try and unravel the conspiracy. So it's going to follow the normal legendary rules. We've talked about it many times. Basically, it's a deck builder where you're bringing cards into your hand. On this particular version, it's one of the encounters, legendary encounters. So you're actually facing off against a greater evil. In X-Files, you have the shadows where the baddies are going to come, come through. And like Alien, which is the other one in this range I've played, you're going to have to scan to reveal the cards. You can't see them straight off. Then you have the Bureau which is where you're going to, again, scan and see your new recruit cards that you're going to be able to bring into your hand. You're going to have the field where the enemies in the f- are going to lie in the field, and if you don't get rid of them, they're going to strike at your character because you have a personal character in this game with hit points. You also, in this version, have evidence cards that you're going to need to be removed or they will come back to haunt you in the end game. Speaking of that end game, this one has a game ender in it in that you have to do a battle at the end. And a little bit more information about it is that every game is comprised of three of the nine seasons of X-Files and you're going to mix those in together. I haven't gone into massive depth running because I think most people know how these games work. And this is just the X-Files version of it. You're very much our legendary encounters expert i think you've played every iteration thus far and you've obviously got some that uh, you like better than others where do you think this one's going to sit for you i was hoping you could say you're very much our legendary man and i was just gonna <laughs> go from that but you very carefully worded your way around that particular <laughs> verbal trap i hate you right where do i feel on this one well with the legendary encounters for me because it's the same system more or less although there's slight tweaks we can talk about in this one it always seems to come down to theme and that's what i'll come down to in the end before we get there you said that the game is always made up of three seasons the seasons are are rated so you have to start with season one four or seven the second third of the game will be seasons two five or eight and so on so they've structured it in a certain way very similar to the other encounters games Mm. what they've done differently in regards to that bit is that 
you don't have all the cards from each season every time you play. So when I play season one, there will be a different mix of cards in there. And I don't just mean a different mix as in the different number of drones like you'd get in Alien or what have you. I mean that there are very different cards in the game. There are allies in there, which you when you uncover will help them as long as you keep them in the shadows. Thematically, if they get exposed from the shadows into the field, then they become open and therefore they get taken out. So you're trying to manipulate that area there, that lineup in the shadows. Also, in the Bureau, you did mention it, but the cards come out face down, which is different to any other off these legendary encounters games and you need to spend your stars your buying power to flip those over and some of those will be informants as well but for the other side they'll be spies and when you flip them over if you leave them in there they're going to be doing some harm to you all the time so you need to buy them to get rid of them and i like the fact that they're mixing in that doubt and we've got informers on their team they've got some spies in our thing but those cards will be different each time and that each time i play through a season it will play slightly differently sure Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you touched on the theme there. This one, for me, really screamed theme from just the having the seasons, which I think obviously is going to appeal to the absolute diehard X-Files fans, mixing in those familiar people and storylines, and right down to yeah the covert and the espionage and having to reveal things and having things lurking in the shadows that can harm you. It just felt really thematic to me. Yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> what really, really throws me off the theme is that they've kept the fighting and strikes in as fighting and strikes and hit points, and that when you reveal enemies and they come in the field, they're still damaging your health. And the fact that you're fighting against enemies, all of that yeah. feels really unthematic to me. So what would you have added? Maybe their credibility or something? Something like that, or the, not evidence as these card types that you're trying to get. Maybe you collect evidence, and you use evidence, yeah. and therefore you're, yeah, you're, you're getting them arrested because you collected evidence against them, but maybe yeah. they've collected evidence against you. So then the weight of evidence, you know, this counter-conspiracy against you is weighing up, so that you're not getting punched. It might Mechanically, it would be very, very similar, but instead of a strike deck... Maybe it's a falsified evidence deck and you pull it and it yeah, goes, oh, yeah. they've got an incriminating photo of you. That's one against you. Do you know what I mean? I see. Yeah, yeah. He probably doesn't sit right in with X-Files for sure. How did you feel about the evidence and the leads decks? Because they're trying to keep it a mystery, I'm going to be honest with you, it's kind of hard to judge how well it works. And mm. is it just going to be just another type of card that rolls along? That's a suck it and see one, mate. Yeah, I, I got more of a feel for the evidence cards uh, reading through. I think the evidence cards felt like if you didn't have them to attack that end game, they would just make life a lot harder for you. Oh, yeah, so you have to collect the evidence to beat the end game. I mean, yeah, but in terms of theme, I couldn't grab it from reading the rule book. How well they were, I have my doubts. Okay, so I don't think there's too much more to go on this one, Ronan. Do you want to... Tell us what your thoughts are. I talked about comparison with Realm of Sand. I think we both agreed that it might slightly pale in comparison to, to previous ones. The problem for me with Legendary Encounters, I've said it before and I'll harp on about it again, is that Alien was the perfect theme because it was hidden enemies that when you find them, you actually have to fight them and you're in peril of battle. And it all worked so well. And they haven't followed up with as good a theme yet for me. I'm really torn on X-Files because it is X-Files and I love the fact that the hidden cards thing I might have to pretend that the strikes are not strikes I'm torn Sean I'm t <laughs> so it's it's going to be a treasure oh I didn't think you were going to go down on that side to be fair 
for me, I'm, well, I'm definitely going to end up with it because Natalie's a huge X-Files fan. But I actually saw enough in there to make me go, you know what, yeah, I, I feel like I would be in an X-Files episode. I feel like I'm fighting these, these shadowy characters that are going to strike out from the shadows. Yeah, they shouldn't be doing me physical damage. They should be attacking my credibility or what have you. But yeah, I, I think it's a thumbs up for me. So it's a treasure. And my first venture into the legendary encounters in terms of buying one. And that brings the first half to a conclusion. And we shall catch you with six more games after this short break. Onwards and upwards, everyone. We're going to take a look at Papering Duel, a two-player 20-minute game from Mandu Games from Martin Nedegaard Anderson. We are two new housemates, and unfortunately, we've been rowing about which wallpaper to put into our new rooms, and we're each trying to get our own way. Our rooms are represented by a grid of nine squares, and there are two tile sets, one of which has tiles of two translucent ones and two coloured ones along one side, and the other one is exactly the same, but the two coloured ones are offset and they are diagonally opposite to each other. There are three different colours of tiles and there are also three different patterns on the tiles. On a player's turn, they're going to have three of these cards in their hand. And after we've seeded the board at the beginning of the game, they're going to play cards onto the board and they must create a line of three, either of the same colour or of the same shape. And they can have more than one line of this. You can have a line of purple, a line of orange, and also a line of stars if you can do that with your three cards. You then place your markers to claim those particular aspects, that colour or that shape, and you draw up according to the number of markers you've placed, the number of lines you've created. On the opponent's turn, they must remove all of your markers. So, for example, if I'd made a lineup and there was three purple in a row, and maybe that was the only one I had, Sean would have to break up that line on his turn or he has lost the game. As well as removing all of the markers the opponent has got placed from their last turn, you must also place at least one of your own. So, for example, if I broke up Sean's purple line, I would be removing his marker. But if I then subsequently made a different line of purple, I would not get to place a marker there. I have to do something original. So I'd have to put a line of reds or a line of polka dots or whatever it is that I'm able to do with my cards. If I wasn't able to do that, again, I would lose the game. And that's it. There's an advanced mode in which you mix in more cards into your deck. And those have got the symbols for either the straight line player or the diagonal player. And those symbols appear and they force your opponent to also cover those symbols if they're anywhere. They're not in a line, they're just one-off spaces. It makes it much trickier once everyone is used to playing Papering Duel. And I'll be honest with you, Sean. What initially attracted me to the game was just the fact that it's got those cards where half of them are covered in a pattern and half of them are see-through and you're building them on top of each other making a pattern and that was enough to attract my eye. When I read the theme in behind this one, I don't think I've ever hated you quite so much. How come? This is a classic. We've all <laughs> rowed about wallpaper in our new flat. This is just a way to capture those, those rows in cardboard form. Very, very irritated I was once I set out learning this game. And... What did I find behind the paper? I found an interesting puzzle, Ronan. Good, good. What? I liked the fact that you have pretty much each round in, in itself perfect information. 
I don't mind that it's combative because it's so quick. And I was kind of feeling it by the end of that rule book. I I lost four things. <laughs> okay. Lettery yeah. things. <laughs> the fact that you can see your opponent's hand of tiles that they've drawn gives you the ability to slightly plan ahead. I wouldn't want to be playing it then on who's two AP, but you've got that anticipation which needs to be in all good abstract puzzles whereby it's not just what I do, it's what I can force you not to do that's going to win me the game. It's very clever, very simple mechanisms. So you try and form patterns and you're trying to disrupt the other person's patterns. That's all the rules. I suggest there might be no game without that, well, less of a game without the advanced mode though. Possibly. Because it's just you make three, I make three, you make three, I make three, and it seems like maybe an unlucky card draw would decide it. Yeah, yeah. Was the advanced mode, what it seemed to be is because I can make a line and then make you waste tiles covering my symbol so that you don't redraw as many as you've played, and I'm starting to kill your hand. And I think in the reduction of the hand down from three is when you're really going to make it hard for people. Also, Ronan, I think this might be the only game, and this might be the only time I've ever said this, the sand timer variant i think actually would be a good idea in this game okay i needed sean on this podcast <laughs> can you treat please come find sean no i've taken over this is trevor <laughs> Hi, trevor you talk a lot more sense than sean i like it's you not hard not hard no, true. <laughs> is this trevor's treasure or treasures tr- or trevor's tra- trap this is tra- 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 trap tra- trevor and uh, this is firmly a treasure a trevor treasure trevor i've never been more surprised at your opinion of a game during one of these treasure hunts that you've never done with me before okay <laughs> uh it's a treasure for me as well i thought it was a lovely quick clever little game you can find out an almost sort of a timeless thing that you could just play again and again and again so wow paper and jewel double treasure i didn't see that coming trevor what's your next game <laughs> well reginald my next game is honga from Gunter Burkhardt and Haber Games playing two to five players. The Sabretooth Tiger Clan in the Stone Age is looking for a new leader. Us players are vying to be that very leader and are carrying out various tasks. However, you must take care of Honga, the Sabretooth Tiger, or he will eat all your resources and he is very hard to shake. So you have a central board with resource gathering spots plus Honga right in the middle of four action spaces. You also have your personal boards to keep track of your resources and action discs that are divided into four with actions or hands on some of the sections. On a turn, you're going to place one of those action discs and you're going to, well, it's up to you, but you should try and make sure that one of those hands icons, at least, is pointing towards Honga. Otherwise, Honga is going to jump onto your player board and start eating your supplies. The other hands are going to point towards various areas on the board to collect resources, to look through the forest for bonus cards, to attract mammoths, to gather water, to pay homage to the gods where you're going to move, essentially move a caveman along a track to score points. You can barter with the other village clans. You can buy supplies to get points. And this is the only way to get points along with the uh, paying homage to the gods. 
players can play any bonus cards which allow them to get one-off bonuses, including, this is the only way of getting rid of Honga, if he happens to be on your board. If you have the majority in Mammoths, you get a Tooth, which allows you to play better action discs on your turn, and the game is going to end when one player gets to a certain number of points. And that, Ronan, is Honga. I think you just wanted to talk about being Hongar and hungry and stuff like that, just that time of day. <laughs> I think hunger is my spirit animal. <laughs> what, the saber-toothed hippo? S- saber- <laughs> okay. Saber-toothed manatee. <laughs> I don't know what they sound like, but that's what I think they sound like. Okay. <laughs> you're making me laugh because there's manatee jokes in the last band on earth that we were watching last night which is no relevance to this game but now you've got me the giggles you might need to talk first you're an imbecile there you go <laughs> so my first question and we've already had this discussion Roland is I just can't understand yeah I know it's for children but I can't understand you ever not paying attention to hunger Unless it was like the last round and you weren't that fussed. All you have to do is make sure that a hand is pointing towards him and then he won't jump on your board and eat your stuff. And given that the game is called Honga, I think it'd be quite difficult to forget that one. It depends upon the distribution in the quadrants of those tiles, right? I mean, if you get a two and two, well, he's only going to jump out and eat one of your food. So if you pointed that two of those twos to a food, you're already one up. But then he's going to stay around, and if you don't get the bonus card, you need to get rid of him. Yeah, but other people, if they ignore Honga, will, will take him off you, won't they? So, I don't know, does he bounce around a lot? I, that's that's what I thought when I was looking at it. But And as you, what did you say about your son? He's going to want Honga. <laughs> he's going to go, yeah, I want the Sabretooth. Yeah, I've got loads of food for him. I was telling Ronan the story, we were playing Catan Jr., and essentially the, the whole aim of the game is to lay out your pirate lairs. And to do that, you have to lay ships and then build little continuous lines of these pirate lairs and ships. And, yeah, on his go, there's also the option to pick up a parrot card, which moves the ghostly pirate who steals stuff from other people and gives you resources and stops them using their resource areas. So constantly doing that, I was like, James, you you know you can't win the game doing just parrots, but I want to. All right, but you know you can't win the game. Yeah, yeah. Daddy's won the game, James. Oh, how did you win? Head table. His head on the table. That's only a bit harsh, <laughs> isn't it? Is that really, you wanted to say that in public, did you? My head table. <laughs> I'm, I'm always a bit puzzled about this idea that kids would want to play these kind of dry Euro games. Because Honga... It's just collecting resources and turning them in, isn't it? Isn't that how you score points? It's, so it's kind of a cube shuffler. Basic, very yeah, basic. Yeah, I mean, you've got nicer bits. In fact, some of the bits, to me, looked a bit too young for the gameplay. They were like real chunky wooden bits, like Animal upon Animal, yeah. whereas the gameplay seemed a bit... What seven-year-old wants to collect resources and hand them in for points? Some, obviously. There's some <laughs> people of all ages will like some things... I wasn't sure about the mass appeal of that, shall we say. Yeah, I don't know where it sits is where I've written down here. Because it's, it's not going to sit for the very young children who are just going to want to do, like, as Ronan said, interact with Honga and sort of a look at him, maybe have him on the board. And then the older market are going to be too bored because it's too simple. The, the catch and the hook is supposed to be Honga, and I don't think that's a clever enough hook. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the other thing around this age that we're looking at was pepper and carrot, which you derided. But at least I can see that the kid has got their own thing and they're forming their own pattern and they can see what they're trying to do. Whereas this is like one step too many. We're like, you're collecting this food, what for? To hand in for that card. What does that card do? Uh, just gets your points. Well, why am I doing it then? Because of hunger. Or hunger will eat you. If you don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but pepper and carrot, I actually has found a better version of it. It was down the pub and I won 20 quid. Oh, it's the, the old fruit machine magic again, is it? <laughs> when the fun stops, stop. <laughs> All right, big gamble away. Uh, I'm going trap short. I can't see it. I can't see what it is that would turn this into a perennial. It's my, it's my word for these treasure hunts, by the way, perennial. I'm seeing how many times I can say it. Good man, good man. Yeah, it's, it's a definite trap for me. It, does, it just doesn't sit anywhere. So I just don't know who would get enjoyment out of playing this one. I'm afraid it's, a, it's another of the recent misses for me for Habba. And it's a trap for Honga. Okay. We'll go into our city building little section here by accident. But here we go. Kicking off with The Estates, a two to five player game taking 60 minutes from Capstone and Simply Complex, designed by Klaus Zock, the man himself from Zock, the, the company. Zock, he designed this game. Okay. Anyway. Can you say Zock one more time? Oh, I'm going to put a billiard ball in a Zock <laughs> and sort you right out if you don't shut up. Okay. The players are investors in six different companies who are developing a real estate lot via auctions. The game begins with three rows with four building lots in each. There are cubes available and they're in six colours and they come with a value of one to six. And you're going to take from the pool of 36, only 24 are going to be in each game and they get laid out in a grid of a three by eight. Also, there are going to be 12 rooftops of various values laid down as a stock face down so you can't see what they're worth. On a player's turn, they're going to select one of these pieces and they're going to put it up for auction, revealing the rooftop value if needs be. Or if you're using one of these building blocks, it has to be what from either end of one of the uh, three rows of them. And there are other things you can select, which we'll get to as we go down through the rules. The next player in turn order bids what they are willing to pay for whatever this wooden piece is. It will go around the table clockwise with players having a chance to up that bid. When it gets back to you, you have two options. You can accept the highest bid and you will take the money from them. And money never leaves or enters the system in this game. Players are always just paying each other. Or you can choose to match the highest bid and from your money, pay that money to whoever the highest bidder was. If you've selected a floor cube, you place it. They must be placed left to right in the lots. But if you wish to build on top of another cube, you can't do it in all the lots. Some of them are only a one floor lot, but it must be in descending numerical value vertically from six going up to one, which was a bit counterintuitive to me, but whatever, maybe that's more intuitive to you. We'll move on from there. The first to place a cube of a colour controls that company and is going to be the one to score for that company throughout the entire game. So that's incredibly important. The rooftop pieces, if that's been won in the auction, are going to go on top of a block and that will seal it and complete it. And it means that whatever colour that top cube is of that building is going to score all the points for that building. The other pieces are you get building permits in values one, two, or three. They are going to shorten or lengthen those three rows in which you can build, which will be important for triggering the end game. There's also a mayor piece, and whoever wins the mayor chooses which of the three rows the mayor goes next to, and it's going to double the score for that row, be it positive or negative. 
because the game will end whenever two of the rows have been completed or there's no bits left in the game. Only complete rows are going to score. Now, they start with four lengths, but with the building permits, you can shorten and lengthen them. But the buildings in the completed row will score all the points for the top cube color, adding up all the values of all the cubes in there and also the rooftop. However, the incomplete ones are going to score negative points for whoever's got the topmost cube in that incomplete row, and that can be doubled by the mayor. Also, on your turn, you can have chosen to stash $1 for the end game, which weakens your spending power, but gives you $1 to add to the value of all your buildings. And at the end of the estates, we're going to see who's got the most value, who's worth the most, and they will be the winner. Sean, this sounds like the most absolutely vicious auction game I've heard of in a long, long time. Right, literally every point I have is about it's just going to be cruel and mean. So I don't think it's for anyone who doesn't like auctions. There's a hell of a lot of auctioning going on, although I do like the mechanic. You like auctions or you like... I like the way they do auctions in this game. Once round and you've got to pay someone else in the game. Yes. So if you put the, the bid up, in effect, it's costing you double the maximum bid because if Sean's bid 10 and it comes back to me, a 10 will be a very high bid, by the way, I think. But oh, I get his 10 or I pay him 10, so I'm down 20 if I want to buy my own thing. So do you want to put up for bid the things that you want or do you not? Love it. Yeah. And I love how simple those rules are. But immediately when you read it, you start going, oh... Oh man, this is going to be tough to decide what to bid, how much to bid, <laughs> when to go, when not to go. All of that is going to be very yeah, tricky. I think, yeah, because obviously sometimes you're just going to need money for future bids. You're not going to be that fast, but it's then choosing. I don't want to push it too high in case I get it, and then I don't want to go too low because I'm giving them an easy, an easy ride to get what they want. So yeah, very clever. It works very well in my mind. Moving on, I think the game looks really good, Ronan. I, I did look at this on Kickstarter when it was on Kickstarter. I had a snifter around it for sure. And yeah, definite table presence there, much like the next game in our roundup. Yeah, I, I think quite actually quite limited components, all very simple but very clear and colourful, and they've made it look as attractive as they could for such a simple concept with so limited components. For sure. Right. Moving on to another couple of things that I think could be really cruel. I think the mayor could just outright be cruel. A mayor could just decimate somebody's score. I love or, it. <laughs> I think it's too harsh. I think it's oh, too harsh. I love much. it. That is, Someone, when that mayor goes up for bid, it's like, oh, <laughs> oh no. Is it going to be a case that the person who's just doing better in the game is going to be the one that's going to have access to, to the mayor. So it's almost sort of uh, extending the leader. But how does that mean? Because if you're doing better, as you if say... you've managed your money better and you've got things cheap... But having loads of money people, doesn't mean you're winning. Yeah, but you will... Having those, because you've got it's the cubes, but you're going to have to have spent money to get the cubes. So by doing that early, are you just making yourself a target for mm, the mayor? Maybe. So then you also have to think about how well do I want to do in this game until that mayor's placed? I think the mayor just could be super cruel. I think if you got the wrong side of a mayor action and he was placed on your row 
they, I think it could be heartbreaking. And then on top of that, you've got the building permits again. Could be really frustrating. Uh, a, if you wanted to, <laughs> you, you were building up a nice little row of buildings and somebody cuts it short so you can't score that much. Or if they extend it to make sure it doesn't finish. Again, super frustrating. Frustrating or amazing? And hilarious and ha <laughs> and crikey, I'd better put up this valuable rooftop for sale now so I can get some money in so I can defend myself against that because it's definitely coming. I think this may be the game that we would come to blows over. Oh man, you're selling it to me. <laughs> you are so. T- I think you might still be Trevor because I'm loving what you're saying. Trevor would beat the bejesus out of you. Trevor does sound like he's quite the gentleman, but Sean would go under. <laughs> anyway, the estates? For me, I did look at it on Kickstarter. I did not pull the trigger, and for similar reasons, I think it's super mean. I'd have to be in this particular kind of frame of mind, and I think I could only really play this one with Ronan because I dislike him that much. So for me, it's a trap. But it looks like a good game, though. I never saw this on Kickstarter and I'm gutted I didn't because this looks fantastic. This is a massive treasure. I am hugely looking forward to being an absolute a-hole in many, many games of the estates. This has leapt right up there in games I am certainly, certainly taking home with me. Why are you singling out this one for being an a-hole? Because it just lets me do it a little bit easier. Sometimes I've got to be creative. Sometimes I've got to lie. Sometimes I've got to be like, they don't know I'm going to do this. He, he, he. But in this one, I can just be myself. Fair enough, fair enough. It's like that moment where you're just like, this is me. This is me. You are a bearded lady. Fair play to you. What if I am? <laughs> so what? Who are you to say? So, in the second of our building games, this one is Expand City. Designed by Alex Cutler from Breaking Games, playing two to four players. And very simply, players are going to compete to be the most successful city planner stroke real estate developer in a shared city. Not too much on the old plot there. Speaking of plot, on the table you have plot tiles. Both residential and commercial. And you have modifier tiles that go alongside these. These are parks, banks, schools, etc., the buildings themselves are made out of plastic stackable building blocks and you have contract cards. During the game, the first thing you're going to do is place a tile adjacent to an already placed tile. Then you must do exactly three actions that are comprised of either constructing a building, i.e. you're going to lay down a building block in your colour and the first one on to a tile claims it, or you're going to get building materials. Very simply, move the blocks from the table into your own personal supply. Next up, you have the option to complete buildings, which is add a roof, and to complete contracts if you can. Contracts ask for buildings of certain heights and stipulates what they should be next to. Completing buildings allows you to take new contracts into your hand. And you get to score the buildings based on the modifier tiles around them. In planning, you're going to draw more tiles, essentially. So there are certain building regulations involved here. You can only build on commercial and residential tiles. You can only have three unfinished buildings at a time. 
You can only build one level per turn and only build up to one level more than the highest completed building of that type that you have. Lastly, residential buildings can only go to a maximum of three levels with commercial buildings having no limit. The game is going to end when all tiles are placed and you're going to check for the end game goals and the highest score wins. A little less mean, I think, but still some interaction going on there, Ronan, in expansity. I know what you're going to love, Sean. What am I going to love, Ronan? You love it when you get to build something for yourself and get to see what you've built at the end of the game. Happy and cuddly and ice cream licky. I could build a really tall tower, Rowley. Yeah, that will make you happy, I know. And I can climb it and swat down planes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, leave the blonde lady alone. We've talked about (laughs) it. All right. Very hard to defend you nowadays. You're going to enjoy that bit. You're going to enjoy the building up bit. I am. I think so. I think that, again, I've, I've mentioned table presence quite often in this episode. And again, that physical table presence is going to be there. People are going to be looking across going, oh, that's interesting. And they're going to come over and ask questions. Now, is there a game behind it? Well, there is. I think there's two games behind it. Cool and one. I'll tell you what the two games are. They're Manhattan and <laughs> Suburbia. And to which I say, so why this? I don't think there's any harm to to combine the two if it's done well. I don't think you're going to get the level of depth that's in Suburbia. But yeah, I suppose if you've played Manhattan, enjoyed Manhattan, would you necessarily find enough for you in this? Well, it doesn't have the streamlining off of Manhattan, the, the instant meanness. Actually, some of it is, but also the gratification. So... It needs to have added enough depth for it to be worth the, the extra bits. They've attempted that with those tiles you can put down that affect the building lots around you uh, with the parks and whatever, and they boost this and minus that in kind of a suburbia style. But, I mean, I like it. I, I do like the fact that you've got to think about it and, and certain basic things go certain places. I just felt that they were a word that I've used a bit over the course of these episodes, a little obvious. I think, Ronan, this game will do something that you don't necessarily like in games. I think the tile draw is going to affect where you go. And I think it's a kind of seat of the pants, uh, every turn sort of adjusting maybe to do this or that. I don't think you're going to set massive end goal strategies. If you put down a certain tile, Sean, that boosts commercial next to it, well, where am I going to build my next commercial? I, I think that it's obvious when a tile goes down you go well that's a good place to put a blue building okay I'll, I'll, I'll stick that there a commercial building oh look residential will get a combined plus three going there I think I'll put one in there I can't see that there's anything not obvious in those modifiers I think yeah I think it's mainly the patterns you're building up and making sure you get access to them and put a place next to them to score those contracts I'm not sure how exactly it's going to play out in terms of if it's going to be that obvious, but it, it might well be. So, I don't think it looks as good as other people do, but I think it looks quite nice. It looks fun. It looks very, very gentle. And that's what lowers it below the bar for me. And the final step on the head of it to throw it into the quicksand where, where traps get discarded is that it's coming out at the same time as the estates. And it's got the same theme, and it's staying building cubes, and the estates looks fantastic and this looks a little bland 
See, for me, obviously, I, I'm not going to really be breaking my neck to play the estates. This is more my sort of strength. I'll break your neck if we play the estates. <laughs> you can try, buddy. <laughs> but this is more my type of pace. Yeah, I don't mind a little bit of meanness, but when it's just absolutely nasty and things that you've worked really hard on can just be whipped out from under you, I really don't like that. So this, yeah, this is more my pace. I, I do like the table presence. I do like being able to build things, as Ronan said at the top and i think this one will be a nice gentle with a little bit of take that game to play so for me it's going to be a treasure and that's expansity i'd rather listen to a little bit of take that <laughs> i was trying to think of a take that song i was waiting for you to sing to be a honest million with you. love songs later i love it i felt that my last game for the episode is Treasure Island. Two to five players. 45 minutes from Matagal. I'm going to start do- stop doing that. And Mark Pacquiao. I wasn't going to stop doing it until then. In Treasure Island, one person is Long John Silver. And the other pirates are forcing Long John Silver to reveal to them where the treasure has been buried on Treasure Island before he gets there. And while there may be a team of pirates, they are certainly not working together. And it's the first person, be it Long John Silver or otherwise, to get to the treasure will be the winner of the game. Now, the board is a map of the island showing various terrains and landmarks and the sea and unreachable areas and various other things. The pirates all start on a map and draw a circle around themselves because the map is to be drawn on, as are the little maps you get handed out and the cheat sheets and lots of things that are going to be wiped clean in this game and players are going to be drawing all over the place. You draw a little circle around yourself wherever you start. Long John Silver knows the treasure cannot be in those circles and then secretly Long John Silver decides where the treasure is going to be and marks it on their own little mini version of the large map. Players' markers all then get placed on a calendar. And whoever is furthest back in the calendar is going to trigger. They may trigger Long John Silver, and then they're going to take actions, and then they go to the back of the queue, and the next person's going to go on, and so forth. If Long John Silver is triggered, it tells him that he must reveal a type of clue. And he starts with uh, sort of map clues, and then he moves on to these things called black spot clues, which are just different types of clues in a different deck, so that the, the clues suit what area of the game we are in. When Long John Silver reveals a clue, he also puts a marker with it. Now, in the, for the very first clue, he must tell the truth. From then on, he's got eight more clues to reveal, and two of them at any point may be a fib. He's going to get access to these sort of uh, maybe markers with question marks on, and then the correct ones have got ticks on. He puts them face down when he puts a clue out, and players are going to have to either believe him or not and investigate whether each of the clues is real or not. Whatever it is, he has to reveal a clue, and it's going to be that the treasure is in a particular direction. It may be a direction, in general, it may be a relative direction. It could be there's a certain distance away from certain things on the map. It could be revealing which of two pirates, or pointing at two pirates and saying, one of you two is the nearest pirate to the treasure. And from this information that the players are getting, be it true or false, the other pirates are trying to work out well where's this narrow it down to it can't be here it can be there or oh, it must be in that corner great i think i've got it then pirates are going to decide what they want to do on their turn they can move a long way away six miles it's called and they actually get a ruler and from the cross where their pirate is they measure out how far they want to go and they put across and say right i'm here now 
They could move slower than that. They could go only three miles and then do a small search in which they get to get a small ring, draw inside it and say, right, is the treasure here? Because I've moved a bit and dug and Long John Silver will say yes or no. Or they could not move and do a bigger search in which they get a larger circle to draw around and they say, is it in here? And again, Long John Silver says yes or no. And if it might be in there, if it's like on the borderline, if it crosses or whatever, you're going to say yes. So they're going around digging these huge holes in this island and Long John Silver is trying to mislead them with the truth and being as difficult as possible. After 17 days I think, might be 19. Long John Silver is going to escape and Long John Silver then appears in the tower which the pirates put them in and Long John Silver themselves is going to move but then every pirate gets a turn clockwise around the table before Long John Silver can move again. If Long John Silver ever makes it to the treasure, they say, I've made it to treasure, show the map on, that they've drawn on and say, here you go, it was here all along everyone. If anyone else ever digs it up before that, then they are the first to find it and they will win Treasure Island. Sean, an amazing look and presentation to the game in terms of components, in terms of that map. There's a very decorative side. There's a slightly less decorative, but maybe more functional side for when you first start playing the game. There are lots of thematic touches and there's that incredible ability for everyone to be drawing all over the place with compasses and circles and rulers and creating this mismatch with their pens trying to work out where the treasure is on Treasure Island. Yeah, all of that, Ronan. Yeah, there's, there was a lot of components that you wouldn't necessarily see in other games. A compass that actually draws. What kind on of a compass? <laughs> there's different kinds of compasses, apparently. Okay, it's uh, what do you call it? A drawy, drawy, circly one. <laughs> drawy, drawy, circly one. We'll go with that. We'll go. With there's that also one. directional ones, so a pirate can ask like because all the pirates have got their own individual powers, and some of them are like, right, you've got to tell me two directions it's not in from me and they put like a compass over the top of the pirate and it says it's not northwest and it's not southeast and they're like oh it's not in that zone it's not in that pirate you know pirates have got individual powers where they forget to flip over secretly the tokens and look to see whether the clue long silver is definitely true or might it be false that is given cool stuff like that i got into the powers when we were talking about the components and the compasses i got excited sorry <laughs> you did you did you could tell you could tell so ronan i passed this one straight by I ruled it out completely because I'm really not a fan of one versus many games. But you you making me read it. This one isn't doesn't work like those. I think we talked earlier about that it's not really one versus everyone because everyone's in it for themselves. But also, the Long John character seems to be the most fun you'll have in this game, and also apparently the most difficult to play. So you're really like, sometimes when you're playing an all versus one, you might be pulling your punches for the sake of the game to kind of, you know, to, to make sure everyone's having fun. In this one, apparently, you just got to go for it. You got to lie as best you can. You got to try and be false. But why being true? You got to be misleading. You're really, really trying to give as little information when you're giving out information as you can. And then the fact that unusually the team are working against each other as well. I like that aspect. It feels piratey sean lots of games claim to be pirate themed and there's nothing really piratey about them like backstabby and thieving and all out for yourselves i've mentioned parlay loads of times previously which i think is really good in that fashion treasure island might be the next one to capture that theme correctly 
Yeah, for certainly for the uh, Long John Silver character. I'm not sure that the players can be particularly backstabby because they're all sort of getting the same information. They're all receiving the same information. Pretty I think much. you have to be aware what information you're receiving or how you receive it. Because, yeah. you know, I don't want you to know everything that I might know because you might get there first. I might yeah. deliberately ask something misleading thinking I, I, I want to put them off in the wrong direction now because I want to get somewhere else without them knowing any more. Yeah, and I think maybe turning over those clues to see if Long John may be telling lies and announcing to the thing that SCA is definitely telling the truth on that one. (gasps) That one. That's where the question mark was? Sean, I'm shocked. Now you don't know because I'm just bad acting. It's good, I like that. (laughs) Or was that my best acting? Or was it? No. I think it could get a bit messy on the board. Depending on how neat people are, I think it could, whether the wipe clean aspect is going to be working 10 games down the, down the line, whether it starts to get a bit grimy and smudgy and stuff, I don't know. But I think we could, we could only judge it for what it is now. To clean it? Yeah, but will it, will it stand cleaning? Will it stand will it start, cleaning? Will it start to erode? What are you cleaning it with? Tide? <laughs> <laughs> There's something I need to say. Go. Bad rule book. In that, uh, I didn't even look at the rule book. There's actually a couple of reviews out there at the moment. It's so, not yeah. the best rule book, uh, including all the sample cards and the diagrams being in French. What? Yeah, that that didn't help a lot. And that thing where it's clearly not been edited by someone who's a native speaker or a very good English speaker. So what I, what I meant to say was le wood. Is, is that real French you're using? That's there? proper French. That is proper yeah. French, yeah. Très bien. Chouette. Okay. So the rule book's not great. But the game, I don't know. I'm keeping my cards close to my chest. I haven't really revealed if I like it or not. What are your thoughts on Treasure Island? I think it's a definite treasure. I really like the sound of being, or the thought even, of being Long John Silver. Also, I like the sound of it, and you need to finish this <laughs> sentence off as Long John Silver. Oh, I think this one be a treasure. You kept that sentence really short because I made you do that. You did. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> treasure, but clear here for innovation and fun and a bit silly and don't take it too seriously and have a bit of crack with it. I don't think it will stand up to very serious, serious play. I think there's probably slight flaws in there. I think it's probably a little bit like, is it there? Isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure, it's there. You can have the treasure. It only takes 45 minutes. We can just play another one. So play it within the right spirit, and I think Treasure Island will be a winner for you. And in the end, we'll all have a slice of the bounty. Oh, dear. Okay, last up. Right, you've got to put a thematic accent on for this one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that mean I've got multiple in multiple characters you, you usually are well true it's not, it's not like I came, came on as a different person in this podcast or anything <laughs> Trevor <laughs> I miss him so last one for today and our Essen Roundup is Dicium it's designed by Joachim Tome and from Geek Attitude Games. Dicium promises four different games linked by the mechanism of dice combinations. With the Dicium dice at the heart of each of these games, each game is going to be set in a distinct universe. So the core mechanisms of this are all all tend to be the same and then you have the dice and each dice have a color with a number one to five 
And also the number six is replaced by a Dicium symbol, which is green, but can also be used for any number, one to five. There is a board for each game. And the general rules here are, you have number combinations, the game operates here in a poker style combos with pairs, three of a kind, full house, etc. You have colour combinations, oh boy it says on the tin. You also get bonuses when you make combos with two or more green sides, and you, for a bonus you're going to maybe add a colour, or if there's a re-roll bonus, etc. You can also battle with each other or monsters, based on having red results, you could store dice, a certain amount can be stored for later. So they're your general rules. Now, you have four different games. I'm really not going to go into each one of them. I'm not, <laughs> not going to learn all four games. But in general, they are the Crazy Cup, which is a competitive racing game and adds in so cheat cards and technology. You have Dungeon, which is a cooperative dungeon crawl stroke adventure game. You have treasure tiles, monsters, and adventure cards in there. Civilization, a competitive conquest game with a, a, board, a map board. And you have Shogun, which is an asymmetric confrontation game, putting ninjas against samurais. Ronan, an ambitious project. We've previously been quite disparaging of... The, the fruits of the labours, for instance, of Friedman Friese's 504, we felt that that was more of a, a project than an actual workable, enjoyable game. Did this fall in the same category, or did they manage to pull it off for you? This Yahtzee variant with a 24-page <laughs> rulebook. <laughs> Carry on. I might end there. <laughs> 24 dense pages of rules... To play a simple dice game. Dice games. <sighs> dice game. Dice games. I tell you what. <laughs> I tell you what. Someone do me a favour. Play them. Tell me which one's the good one. And I'll play that one. What? Who? In what world? Who just... Like, it's like... Matsko turn around and saying... Alright, here's Cyclades. A game about conquering islands in Greek antiquity. Oh, okay, cool. That's quite good. Here also is Camel Cup, a game about raising camels with exactly the same mechanisms as Cyclades. Well, that's a bit weird. Uh, why have you done that? Why didn't you just change the mechanism to make the racing game better? No, no. We wanted to fill it in the system. All right, okay. Here is Great Western Trail, a game about cowboys and, and transporting beef. Okay. What's the mechanisms? The same as Cyclades and Camel Cup. Why have you done that? Why didn't you design it? Part of the fun of different games is discovering new systems. That's why we like to buy a million different... Why are you giving me the same game with different names? I don't understand. <laughs> why have you done this? Just find uh, one good uh, one. Uh, well, well, I'm generally on board with what you're saying. It's not, it's not the same game. There's lots of things added to change it up. Your core way of doing actions and to to get results is the same but there are lots added but my worry about this one and my rant is based on you've got that core mechanism you're adding so much into it that you need a 24 page rule book why would someone not just go and play a good dungeon crawler why would someone not just go and play a good civilization game the learning curve for your game seems to be just as high as if i went and picked out civilization from fantasy flight or i don't know castle raven do that 
Do Civilization New Dawn. It's a really good game. <laughs> it takes less time to learn than these four. What was the other one? Castle Ravenloft. Do that. That's a good game. Do the new D&D adventure game that's coming out. That, that'll, be, that'll be cool. Play that game. Yeah, I don't understand. As a viable product, I don't think 504, after the initial buzz, was particularly well received because there wasn't any really outstanding games within it. It was a very clever project, as we said at the time, but you're not going to be playing it two, three years down the road. Given that we have had 504, and I think Friedman Fries is a genius, that hasn't worked. Why do you think that your one is going to work? Even if you thought it did, even if you went, you know what, this is the best way to design these four games. Here's an idea. Release the best one so that people get the system and say oh that's a really clever dice system i really like that and this game plays very well and it's got an eight page rule book and it's small and it doesn't cost that much and it's got one board and i haven't got a big overhead to get into it then if you think that works bring out an expansion that adds in the next game and says that basic stuff we've given you already Add this little this one board and a few rules. Now you've got another game to use. Oh, and it only cost me a few quid. You'd end up making more money because overall adding three expansions would, would earn you more money, but you've proven the concept. To bring it out without proving the concept first is just, is mate, is like, who's going to buy it, mate? Yeah, mine wasn't as clever as that. Mine was have each of them as a separate entity. Have your base game, your base set of dice that you would buy, and then you literally mix and match. Okay, I'll have that one and that one. There's your two games, or your one game, or all four if you want them. Have them all there, just available. This was like the 36th rule book I've read just for these shows. Never mind all the other ones. 24 pages to be told. I can make poker hands out of dice results. <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. Dice, you man. This just... This seems doomed. If people come up to me and say, have you played the race game at Dicium? It's really fun. There we start redeeming it. But someone else is going to have to do it and I don't know who they're going to get to do it. Do you want to finalise that with, with, a, with a treasure that you're bound to give it? Yeah, treasure, Dicium. Yeah, treasure. <laughs> no, no, try. Okay, so me, I, I think it is a really brave project but have serious doubts to it and for me it's definitely going to be a trap unless as Ronan said somebody comes and says you know what you were wrong about that one then I might give it a go and that concludes our Essen previews we'll see you in the outro in just a short moment that is 12 more Essen releases poured over, salivated on, nibbled at the edges, and generally degraded for your pleasure. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to go near them now. Not even the treasury ones that I licked. Not even, especially not the treasury oh, ones you licked. I thought you said to lick them all. Leave them all. That Leave not, them all. That was not the message I got. You ain't got to be like that. So I hope you guys are as super mega excited for Essen and the flood of games that will come out afterwards if you're not going to make it to the show as we are, as you can tell, we are over the moon. We have got a schedule to keep. We're flying out of Heathrow early Wednesday morning, Sean. That is correct. Straight to the Messa for a press event, I've been told. 
by someone on the inside where the salami baguettes are available afterwards. So that'll be a free lunch. We're literally getting a free lunch. That what? could be the highlight. What, 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 what? Yeah. We, uh, and our, our meetings with people begin from Wednesday, which we're very fortunate to be able to do. We're going to see lots of lovely people and publishers. We're going to get to try some games which aren't out yet. We've got a playtest of Barrage booked in, which is on Kickstarter right now from Cranio Creations. I don't know if it's any good. So I'm not going to tell you to go look at that one, but do go look at Mutants when it comes out on the 30th, because I know that is a good one. But um, we will report back on that. So Wednesday, we are going to be going around and meeting lots of people and doing things. Thursday is when the actual show opens. It's usually the quietest day. We have a couple of meetings that day, Sean, but not too many. We've got our time on the Dice Tower booth. And then we are going to try and get some gameplays in, because we are recording our first From Essen show Thursday night. We are. We are also running at the the Dice Tower booth, and I've just looked it up. It's in Hall 4, and it's G106, and we're going to be there from 1 until 2 on Thursday and Friday, and from 11 until 12 on the Saturday. We are going to be wearing our brand new Game Pit t-shirts with our new logo either spread across the whole front or on the, the pocket on the left breast. And the big thing to recognise us, hopefully, we'll have Pit Crew written over on our shoulders at the reverse of them. That's correct, you, I, and Eleanor. So if you see us around, grab us, shake us, Touch us, do whatever you want to do, it's all good, it's all fine, we're quite pliable. So we're recording Thursday night, we're also recording Saturday night. So those will be your first impressions of games we've played at Essen. We will, of course, then start working on some review shows. As you know, we like to play them a few times, so we won't be rushing out any full reviews after that. But what will be rushing out are pit stops. We've got about 18, I think, Essen game pit stop overview videos filmed and out there already we've got an SN2018 playlist on YouTube as soon as we get back I've had a load of leave to take hence we've had spotty um, record of episodes this year because we've both been working a lot so I had a load of leave I had to take so I've taken some and I'm going to be filming loads and loads of pit stops so it will be well worth your time to either hit up our geek list if you don't like to do YouTube on BGG or head over to YouTube and subscribe because they're going to start flooding out and you will get quick overviews of many games and some people like them, maybe you will. Very, very good. So yeah, all it says is left to say, rather, is thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. And the next time you hear us, it will be from Essen. Whoop! Is that a Z-woot? Z-woot? I don't know what happened there to my voice. I just <laughs> I lost it for a second. See us uh, out. I need to go get some honey. Honey? Okay, you go on and get your honey. Good. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. And as Ronan just mentioned, we do have our YouTube channel with loads of pit stops with Essen Madness going on right now. And of course, convention coverage. We're on social media. We have our Facebook page. We have an Instagram account. And we're also on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. While you say that, Sean, I'm going to jump in here quickly. 
We will be putting loads and loads of Twitter coverage out from Essen as well. We'll be tweeting out photos and some thoughts. And Eleanor is with us all week, and she is in charge of our social media for this week. So she will be tweeting loads of photos out and putting together montage videos from every day at the halls so you get to actually see games and see us probably and see other people we're chatting to so worth keeping an eye on though she's getting she's getting handy with the video editing carry on Sean. she Sorry. is she did a fantastic video for the tabletop gaming live expo uh, go check that out on our youtube video very very good very informative and finally we have our board game geek guild if you want to pop along there we are free to chat away while the night's away chatting to you and if you do wish to email about us about anything it's the game pit podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for listening music by e aaron Essen boy, Essen boy, Essen boy, Essen boy.